CrimeCon, the world's number one true crime event, is returning to London on Saturday the 11th and Sunday the 12th of June 2022. Get inside the mind of serial killers and psychopaths, learn from leading criminologists, hear from the families and survivors, meet your favourite true crime podcasters, immerse yourself in forensic evidence and delve deeper into unsolved crimes. CrimeCon is the ultimate true crime weekend partnered by CBS Reality UK, expert-led true crime. I'm delighted to say that I will be there and I would love to see you there too. Remember to use the code MENSREA for your special 10% discount. This year is set to be even bigger and better and not only will you be able to take deep dives into cases and hang out with all your favourite personalities from the true crime world, there will be live podcast recordings and podcast host panel discussions and Q&A sessions. And after all that, you can join us at the bar. Limited early bird tickets are on sale now and don't forget that code MENSREA to get your discount. For more information, visit crimecom.co.uk. See you there. You're listening to the Men's Raya podcast, and this is the story of Anne Walsh. Kilrush is a little town on the west coast of Ireland. It sits right at the mouth of the River Shannon, where it meets the Atlantic Ocean, creating a wide expanse of water between County Clare and County Kerry. It's a fairly typical regional town, arranged around an old market square, and it also has a pretty marina. A few pubs, a church, one primary school and one secondary school, and businesses, which are mainly family-run, mean that this is indeed one of those close-knit rural communities. People work and live in the area, although Ennis and Limerick are both within about an hour's drive. In 2005, Anne Walsh was 23 years old. She was from Pella Road in Kilrush and had attended the local community school where she was well-liked and known as a quiet but friendly girl. She was helpful and kind. Anne had hopes to become a hairdresser and work in the beauty industry. She loved makeup and fashion. Anne was the eldest daughter of the family's five children. Her parents, Anne and Stephen Sr., had two daughters and three sons. From her late teens and into her early twenties, Anne had had a steady boyfriend, but that relationship had eventually ended, and Anne had briefly gone out with another young man from the area. But by August of 2005, she was single and enjoying her life. That month, Anne was preparing for a trip to Spain with her mother and younger brother. The holiday was to be her first sun holiday. She'd gotten her passport sorted out and was looking forward to it. On the 24th of August that year, a Wednesday, Anne was spending the evening in one of the little pubs in Kilrush, Crotty's, located on the Market Square. There, she had met with her former boyfriend and the two had had a few drinks together. But then, just after one o'clock in the morning, there was a knock on the door of the family home in Pella Road. When it was opened, the Gardaí were outside. They gave the horrible news that Anne had died. 
just a few hours before, her body had been located by Gardie in Toller Street, at the striking parish church just ten minutes' walk from her home. Anne's body was found in the grounds of St. Sennan's Church just after 11pm on Wednesday the 24th of August. She had suffered what were described as neck injuries. She was missing a number of items of clothing and had been found partially hidden behind a shed at the back of the church. News of what had happened to Anne spread quickly in the small community. The principal of Anne's secondary school commented, quote, It has come as an awful shock to the school that someone who has been here right through her school years has passed away in such circumstances. The deputy mayor of Kilrush also expressed shock and grief at the news, saying, quote, For such a small community, which is devastated by this news, it's hard to come to terms with what has happened, and our sympathies go to the mother and father of this girl. Everyone is now feeling the same. Just shock right down to the core of your body. Gordon Deegan, who reported the events to follow extensively in various papers, and whose work makes up the majority of the sources for this episode, began his coverage of the story with an article outlining that a 23-year-old man had appeared in court on Thursday the 25th of August, charged with assault. This man from Cura Clare, a village about 10 kilometres inland from Kilrush, was found not far from where Anne Walsh's body was discovered the night of her death, and he was arrested there under Section 4 of the Criminal Justice Act. After this, he'd been brought to Kilrush Garda Station. At the end of the allowed period of detention, he was charged under Section 4 of the Non-Fatal Offences Against the Person Act, with assault causing serious harm. That day, the man was brought before a special sitting of the District Court and Judge Leo Malone. The man was named in the press as Raymond Donovan, Anne Walsh's former boyfriend of a number of years. Anne and Raymond had broken up in September of 2004. Garda Michael Ryan told the court that when the charge had been put to Donovan, he had responded simply, no. Gordon Deegan noted that Raymond Donovan had a number of fresh scrapes to his face, which could be seen in the press photographs published at the time. The wounds were not insignificant and, in fact, looked quite deep, in addition to being obviously recent. In the court at the hearing that day, Donovan's solicitor, Ms Tara Godfrey, made an application for legal aid, saying that her client was in receipt of disability benefit. She said there would be no application made for bail at the time, but Ms Godfrey did ask that her client receive psychiatric intervention. The solicitor told the court that Mr. Donovan had previously received psychiatric treatment from services in the Midwest and in Mayo, and she asked that he be sent to the Central Mental Hospital in Dundrum. Ms. Godfrey continued, quote, My client may have difficulties accessing psychiatric services in Limerick, as the prison may be unable to provide such a service there. There were objections from the state regarding this, however, and Superintendent McKeown, appearing for the state, told Judge Malone that the court did not have the ability to remand the accused to Dundrum. Judge Malone agreed, and so instead he ordered that Donovan have a psychiatric examination carried out while he was held in Limerick Prison. During the short hearing, Raymond's mother and two sisters sat in the body of the court, directly behind the accused. Members of Anne's family were present too. 
As Raymond Donovan was led from the court, Gordon Deegan reported that there was a disturbance created when Anne's sister, Mary Walsh, stood and began verbally abusing Donovan and his mother. The girl had to be restrained by Gardee. On the evening of Saturday, the 28th of August, Anne was removed to St. Sennan's Church after a private prayer ceremony was held in her home for her family. At the time, her devastated father, Stephen Sr., asked, quote, How can this be right? How can God take my beautiful girl? I don't understand. Anne's funeral mass was held on Monday, the 29th of August, 2005, at St. Sennan's Church. A large crowd gathered to pay their respects to the young woman and her shell-shocked family. The parish priest, Father Michael Sheedy, led the Requiem Mass and told the congregation, quote, We all need to ask why this happened, and could something have been done to prevent it, and should something have been done? Father Sheedy went on to say that Anne's death had left a huge, quote, emptiness in the hearts of her family, and that Anne was so full of life. This was the tragic death of an innocent, he said noting that Anne had always had time for others and she was very kind. Her cruel killing had turned the Walsh family's world upside down. Members of Anne's family stood during the Mass and spoke about Anne and what had happened. Her younger sister Mary described the 23-year-old as a, quote, great sister and daughter, and continued, quote, she should never have been taken. We're going to miss her so much. We all love her. She was as good. She never harmed anyone. She was an angel and she never should have been taken away. After this, Anne's uncle Martin addressed the congregation and said, quote, It's a chilling fact that something like this would happen just yards from us here in the grounds of the church. It's horrific to think about it. He went on to ask, quote, Can we be vigilant enough? People should look after each other and make sure nothing like this would happen in a small, close-knit community like this. Otherwise, there can be horrific consequences. If people in general stopped turning a blind eye, the world would be a better place. Martin also went on to appeal for anyone who might have information that would help Gardee in their investigation to get in touch with the detectives at the local station. Anne was buried in All Saints Cemetery on the Shanachile Road, just outside the village. This episode is sponsored in part by the amazing Stitch Fix. Stitch Fix is an online personal styling service for women and men that takes the hard work out of dressing well. It's a fun way to find clothes that suit you, your price preferences, and your life. I do this thing where I spot a new trend, fall in love, buy a piece of clothing, and then I find I have nothing to wear it with. I'm pretty bad at putting together outfits and end up with loads of clothes, but nothing to wear. Thank goodness for Stitch Fix. With Stitch Fix, everything is selected with you in mind, making great style effortless, and the service is for both women and men. To get started on your fashion refresh, head to stitchfix.co.uk slash mensrea to take their style quiz. They get an idea of your style, your budget, what sizes you are, and then a personal shopper goes and finds clothes for you and they're delivered to your door. Then you try on every item in the comfort of your own home and you can easily send back anything that you don't love. 
When you use Stitch Fix, you pay a styling fee of just £10, and that tenor is deducted from the cost of the clothes you decide to buy. If you keep all five items they send, you get 20% off. And Stitch Fix is super flexible. There's no subscription required. You just schedule your box whenever you want, and delivery and returns are easy and free. Get started today at stitchfix.co.uk slash mensrea. That's stitchfix.co.uk slash m-e-n-s-r-e-a. Once again, that's stitchfix.co.uk slash mensrea. This episode is also sponsored in part by our best buds, Manscaped. Join the 4 million folks worldwide who trust Manscaped with our exclusive offer. Go to manscaped.com and use the code MENS for 20% off plus free shipping. If you have a hairy person in your life and you need to buy them a gift, you really should check out Manscaped's Performance Package 4.0. Inside, you'll find the signature Lawnmower 4.0. This electric trimmer is designed to trim hair on loose skin and has advanced skin safe technology. It also comes equipped with a spotlight, which not only helps you take care of all those short and curlies, it's also super helpful if the electricity goes out. In the performance package, you also get Manscaped's Crop Preserver and Crop Reviver to banish bad vibes and bad smells from your nethers and to guarantee a confidence boost. On top of that, Manscaped sends you those two free gifts, the shed travel bag and a pair of their boxers. When it comes to male grooming, Manscaped have you covered. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code MENS at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com using the code MENS. Manscaped, your balls will thank you. On Monday the 29th of August, Raymond Donovan was further remanded in custody at Ennis District Court. At this hearing, Tara Godfrey, again appearing on behalf of the accused, complained that the press coverage of the case seemed to give the impression that Donovan was charged with an offence other than intentionally or recklessly causing harm to Anne Walsh. She asked for Judge Malone to direct that the media report only what had been said in court, but the judge refused this. He said that the media was well aware of their responsibilities. Then, on Friday the 23rd of September, there was another hearing in the district court in relation to the charges against Donovan his fifth since his arrest. He was appearing before Judge Joseph Mangan, who had, at previous hearings, had to warn members of Anne Walsh's family to behave themselves while in the court as they had spoken out and shouted insults and abuse at Donovan. Given the previous difficulties, Judge Mangan decided to hear Donovan's remand hearing at the beginning of the sitting. During the five minutes the matter was being dealt with, Anne's uncle, Martin Walsh, disregarded Judge Mangan's warning and aimed a tirade of abuse at Raymond Donovan. Martin Walsh was then ordered to leave the courtroom. When the proceedings resumed, Tara Godfrey again raised the issue of psychiatric treatment for her client, saying that he had not yet had an assessment carried out as had been ordered previously. Then the state made an application to have sight of Donovan's medical records, and in response Tara Godfrey commented, that the state had already, quote, prevailed upon a member of Mr. Donovan's family to provide same. The prosecuting inspector, Kevin Moynihan, said that he did not agree with that assertion. After this, while Donovan was being led from the court, another man from Kilrush, also remanded in custody who was before the court that morning, assaulted Donovan in the middle of the courtroom. 23-year-old Leslie Kenny had been before the district court in relation to the alleged damaging of four cars in Kilrush, occurring on the 21st of September. 
Gardy rushed to restrain this other prisoner who had managed to tear Donovan's shirt in the kerfuffle. The other detained man was noted to have a wound to his left arm which was bleeding. He was then handcuffed by Gardy. While Gardy dealt with the other prisoner, another man who had been in the body of the court stood and attempted to rush at Raymond Donovan. Gardy intervened and the man was held back, saving Donovan from another assault. All while this was happening, Anne's mother, Anne Senior, held a large framed photo of Anne in the court and addressed those in the public gallery, saying, quote, My beautiful girl, can you see her? as she began to make her way towards the accused. As Mrs. Walsh got near to the clerk's desk at the head of the court, a detective guard cut her off, and she was physically removed from the courtroom. Mary was also there and was heard to shout curses at Donovan and was also escorted from the court. Court reporters noted that Raymond Donovan appeared shaken after this event. He was surrounded by guardee and prison officers and was ushered to the top of the court, away from the men who would come after him. Judge Mangan had stood and left the court when the assault began. Donovan was then led from the court through a back door and the shouting and chaos in the courtroom subsided. Judge Mangan then resumed his place on the bench and carried on with the business of the court for that morning. Gordon Deegan reported in the Irish Independent that garden numbers in the court were lower than normal that day as other routine administrative hearings were ongoing in the Ennis courts and this had reduced the numbers of Garda members available for hearings in the criminal court. On Wednesday the 28th of September, 23-year-old Leslie Kenny appeared in Kilrush District Court charged with the assault in the court the previous week. He was also charged with intent to provoke a breach of the peace. His solicitor suggested to Judge Mangan, again presiding, that given he was present at the time of the incident that prompted the charges, it may not be appropriate for him to hear the case. Judge Mangan said that, though he had been aware of the commotion in Ennis District Court the week before, he was not aware of the identities of those involved, but it would have to be decided if he should ultimately hear the case. Mr. Kenny was remanded in custody. Leslie Kenny would go on in October of 2005 to receive a five-month sentence for his assault on Raymond Donovan after pleading guilty. The next hearing in the proceedings against Raymond Donovan was on Friday the 21st of October 2005. He was brought in and out of the court via a side door by prison officers in order to try and avoid any further outbursts in the court. Inspector Tom Kennedy from Ennis Garda Station told the court that 112 witness statements had been taken to that point as part of the Garda investigation into Anne's death. He informed the court that more time was needed in order to complete the book of evidence. He asked that they be given four more weeks in which to do this. Inspector Kennedy also said that they were seeking an adjournment in order to allow further directions from the DPP in the case to be received. Donovan's solicitor, Ms. Godfrey, asked for this adjournment to be made preemptory against the state, meaning that should the DPP be unable to issue directions by the time the new date came around, the charges against Donovan would be struck out. Judge Mangan rejected this request, however. Inspector Kennedy also said that an application to access the accused's medical files was being withdrawn. That day, Donovan also appeared in court in relation to 10 summonses against him, relating to allegations of criminal damage, public order breaches and driving offences, 
dating from between November 2002 and June 2004. A new court date was set and he was further remanded in custody. Then, on Friday the 11th of November 2005, Donovan appeared in the district court in Ennis. He was there with new charges laid against him. Raymond Donovan was now accused of the murder of Anne Walsh. Evidence of arrest was given by Garda Michael Ryan, who relayed that Donovan had said he understood the charge when it was put to him, and had further commented, quote, I didn't mean to do it. Inspector Kevin Moynihan asked that the previous charge of causing harm be withdrawn. The judge, Leo Malone, agreed and granted legal aid in relation to the new charge. Anne's mother and sister Mary were present in the court during the hearing. There were no disturbances reported from the proceedings. This was not the case at Donovan's remand hearing on the 25th of November, two weeks later. Before the case was called, two guardie went up to two members of Anne's family and asked that they leave the court. Still, when Donovan was brought into the court, escorted by two prison officers, abuse was yelled at him. Two family members were then forcibly removed from the packed courtroom by guardie. These were the same two members who had to be removed on the date when Donovan was assaulted by Leslie Kenny, also in custody at the time. An application for an adjournment was made by the DPP in order to allow more time for the book of evidence to be prepared, and this was granted. After the hearing, Inspector Kennedy told the press that after consulting with Judge Mangan before the hearing began, it was decided that some members of Anne's family were to be banned from attending court sittings in relation to the case. He continued, quote, This decision has been made arising from previous incidents at the court and to avoid any unsavoury incidents in court in future, end quote. Raymond Donovan's trial opened on Tuesday the 23rd of May 2006 before Mr Justice Paul Carney and a jury of eight men and four women at the Central Criminal Court, sitting in Ennis. He pleaded not guilty to the charge of murdering Anne Walsh the year before. Isabel Kennedy, senior counsel, appeared on behalf of the state. She told the jury they would hear the accused had been in a three-year relationship with Anne Walsh in the period before September 2004. They had not been together in August of 2005 when they were seen drinking together in Crotty's pub in Kilrush. That night, the two had been joined by Anne's brother Stephen, but Anne and Donovan had left the pub at around 9pm. They were last seen about five minutes before 10 that night outside a grocery store in the town centre and the court would hear that about an hour later, Gardy got a call from Donovan's brother, Sean. On foot of this call, the police had gone to St. Sennan's Church and saw Raymond and Sean Donovan standing inside the church gate. The two men had then directed Gardy to the rear of the churchyard, where Anne Walsh lay on the ground. A guard checked for a pulse, but found none. Raymond Donovan was then arrested at the scene. Ms. Kennedy informed the jury that the assistant state pathologist, Dr. Michael Curtis, would say that the post-mortem examination had concluded that Anne had died from strangulation. Testimony in the case began with a barman who was working in Crotty's pub in Kilrush that day, who took to the stand to give evidence. Andrew Jenkins said that when he started work that evening at 7pm, Donovan and Anne had had one drink by that stage. Throughout the evening, the two had bought each other drinks. 
The accused had had a double and then a single brandy with coke, and Anne Walsh had had two pints of Budweiser. Given how the two were interacting with one another, Mr. Jenkins said it was his impression that the two were boyfriend and girlfriend. He recalled that they had been hugging and kissing in the bar. Another barman who worked at Johnson's Bar in Kilrush, Kevin Finn, described having seen Donovan walking across the town square that evening. The witness said Donovan seemed drunk and he, quote, took a stagger as he made his way across the road. Members of the Garda Technical Bureau who had attended the scene told the court that various items were collected for a further examination from the area near to where Anne had been killed. These included runners, clothing and underwear. The following day, the court heard evidence from a number of witnesses who had seen Raymond Donovan and Anne Walsh outside a Mace convenience shop sometime after half nine on the night of the 24th of August. The court then heard from Sean Donovan, the defendant's brother. He had received a phone call from his brother at about half past ten that night, where Raymond had told him that he had had a fight with Anne and, quote, put his hands to her throat to stop her shouting, end quote. Sean revealed that he had initially thought that the call from his brother was a cry for help and that Raymond was in fact going to kill himself. Sean had thought this because in the month before, Raymond had attempted suicide. The defendant had made an attempt on another occasion as well and had, in this very serious incident, injured his throat and wrists. The witness told the court that earlier on the evening in question, the accused had asked to be taken to Our Lady's psychiatric hospital for an inpatient stay. This request had come out of the blue and Raymond had changed the subject immediately. Sean Donovan said that Raymond had never asked for this to be done in the past. Sean Donovan recounted how, on the night of the 24th, after receiving the phone call from Raymond, he had driven out to Kilrush to meet with him. When he arrived at St. Senan's, Raymond did not seem well. Sean told the court that his brother was, quote, out of it. He was distant, had a funny stare, and scratches to his face. Then the witness described how Raymond had brought him around to the back of the church grounds, where the witness saw Anne's partially clothed body. Sean Donovan was cross-examined by John Edwards, senior counsel, acting on behalf of his brother, and the witness further described how the defendant had been distraught and crying that night as they waited for police to arrive. Sean said he had given Raymond a hug and told him that people were, quote, coming to sort it out. Then the court heard from Garda Michael Ryan, one of the members who had responded to the call placed that night by Sean Donovan. When he arrived at the church, Garda Ryan had spoken briefly to Raymond Donovan and asked the defendant what had happened. It was the guard's evidence that Raymond had then told him that he and Anne Walsh had been having sex at the back of the church when Anne started shouting and scratching him. The defendant described having put his hands on Anne's throat until she stopped. Donovan had said, quote, I didn't mean to harm her. I'll hang myself and do a proper job this time, end quote. On the third day of the trial, the court heard the contents of various Garda interviews with the defendant. In an interview on August the 25th with Garda Michael Ryan, who the court had heard from the day before, Raymond Donovan had outlined that he had known Anne for seven years. The defendant said that the two had gone out for five years and that he loved her. Donovan gave his version of the events to the Garda, 
saying that that night he and Anne were being intimate in the grounds of the church. According to the accused, the couple had visited the same spot for the same reason on two or three previous occasions. Donovan explained that earlier in the evening they had been in the pub for a few drinks together. But he told Gardy that at some point during this interaction in the churchyard, Anne had become angry and upset. Donovan explained that Anne had become exercised over the idea that he might move away from the area. He asserted that she was yelling at him that he was not to move out of Kilrush. But Donovan said to the guardie that he wouldn't have moved because Anne wanted him to stay with her. In reaction to the shouting and Anne hitting out at him, Donovan admitted to Gardy that he had reached out and put his hands around Anne's throat. The defendant said he had choked Anne in order to stop her shouting and striking him. Donovan recounted that after Anne had gone quiet, he'd rang his brother to tell him what had happened. The court heard that in this interview with Garda Ryan, Raymond Donovan had stated, quote, When she went quiet, I thought she was messing. I didn't mean to choke her. I didn't hit or scratch her. He continued, quote, You hardly think I went off and strangled her for the good of my health, end quote. Garda Ryan had asked Donovan whether he had planned to assault Anne that day, to which the defendant responded, quote, It wasn't something I woke up and decided to do. I knew that when I let go of her throat, I had done something wrong. I didn't mean to kill her. I'm sorry. I don't care what happens now. Do what you have to do. Gardy had also asked Donovan about a strange discovery that they had made just outside the grounds of St. Senans. They'd found a watch. The watch was said to belong to the man who had briefly gone out with Anne after she and Donovan had broken up but the accused insisted to Gardy that he did not know how the watch had come to be there. No explanation was given in court for the significance of this watch. In a separate interview with Garda Oliver Brown, later in his period of detention, Donovan was asked about a number of people who had seen him and Anne arguing outside the shop in Kilrush earlier in the evening. Donovan responded that he knew nothing of this argument. On Friday the 26th of May, the fourth day of the trial, Dr. Diane Daly was called to give evidence in relation to clothing that had been worn by the defendant and Anne Walsh on the night of her death. Dr. Daly said that there was no evidence of semen found on swabs taken from Anne Walsh's clothing. A drawstring on Anne's tracksuit bottoms was broken and the witness had concluded that force had been used to cause this snapping. The trial then adjourned for the weekend to resume the following Tuesday, the 30th of May. That day, the court heard from Assistant State Pathologist Dr. Michael Curtis, the fifth day of the trial. He described visiting the scene and observing Anne Walsh's body lying on waste ground in the churchyard. Dr. Curtis had noted that Anne wore a yellow top, a bra and two socks, but she was otherwise unclothed. At post-mortem, Dr. Curtis had noted bruising to Anne's neck and pinprick hemorrhaging in Anne's eyes, which indicated a sustained effort to throttle or strangle. There were no signs of sexual trauma. The bruise on Anne's neck was 19 centimetres by 6 centimetres in size and ran across her neck. There were linear scratches along her neck too, indicating that she had made an effort to free herself and scratched herself in the process. Dr. Curtis also found injuries to her back, which he said meant it was possible that Anne had been held down on the ground. Further, bruising to Anne's chest indicated that someone had knelt on her. 
There was another bruise to the right side of Anne's face, which the pathologist said may have been the result of blunt trauma or from an inadvertent strike to the area during the course of the struggle. After hearing the evidence from Dr. Curtis, Isabel Kennedy for the DPP told Mr. Justice Carney that the state's case had concluded. Mr. Justice Carney addressed the jury briefly then and informed them that the defence would not be going into evidence. He would have further remarks regarding that during his charge to them, he said, and he would be telling them to, quote, attach no significance to that whatsoever. Closing statements took place the following day, on the 31st of May. Isabel Kennedy asserted that Raymond Donovan had intended to kill Anne when he put his hands around her neck. She pointed to evidence heard from the assistant state pathologist and said that the force required to inflict those injuries, which included a fractured bone in her neck, was such that it required a sustained effort and that this would have taken up to two minutes to do this. Ms. Kennedy put it to the jury, quote, if a man puts his hands on a girl's neck, what is the end result going to be? Did Ms. Walsh scratch Mr. Donovan in order to stop him? She argued that the jury were entitled to conclude from this that Donovan had intended to kill Anne given his actions that night, and that this had therefore been murder. Mr. John Edwards defending then stood. He reminded the jury that they had heard throughout the trial that Donovan had said he had not meant to kill Anne. His client had said this multiple times. Mr. Edwards also asserted that there had been no motive for the murder presented by the state. Why Donovan had allegedly killed Anne went unexplained. It was the defence's case that Anne had provoked Donovan, leading to her death and Defence Counsel outlined an alternative narrative of events for the jury to consider, given the evidence that had been presented to them. Mr. Edwards said, quote, She was clearly out of control. Both had drink taken. Ms. Walsh loses it and is shouting, roaring, and scratching his face. Mr. Donovan puts his hands around her neck for her to desist and for the storm to blow itself out. But he discovers she is dead, end quote. Donovan's defence argued that the state had failed to prove that there was intent, saying that this was in no way a premeditated murder. Mr. Edwards outlined that his client was a troubled young man with a very recent attempt to end his life just before Anne was killed. After he realised that Anne had died that night, Donovan's distress had been at what had happened to Anne rather than what might happen to him, as per his brother's testimony. Donovan had loved Anne, Mr. Edwards said. Then, Mr. Justice Carney delivered his instructions to the jury, and the following day, deliberations began. And so, on Thursday the 1st of June, the seventh day of the trial, after just under three hours, the jury returned a unanimous guilty verdict in the case. Gordon Deegan reported that Raymond Donovan remained still and made no reaction when the verdict was read to the court. Mary, Anne's sister, broke into a brief bout of applause. Then the sentencing phase of the proceedings began. A victim impact statement was given by Mrs. Anne Walsh, Anne's mother. She said that the family was torn apart by the murder of her daughter and they were all struggling to carry out day-to-day tasks or eat or sleep without medication. Mrs. Walsh said Anne was her best friend. She was to have gone on holiday in the weeks following her death 
and Mrs. Walsh recalled that the passport photo Anne had taken for her trip was now on her gravestone. This was something she, as a mother, had never thought she would see. Mrs. Walsh concluded, telling the court, quote, We will never be right again. Anne was full of life. She was a beautiful girl, and I miss her. Gerda Michael Ryan then appeared before the court again and outlined Raymond Donovan's background. Donovan had 11 previous convictions, Mr Justice Carney was told. He had been very cooperative throughout the Garda investigation and had expressed remorse immediately. Gerda Ryan also noted that Donovan had been diagnosed with manic depression, having been in and out of psychiatric care both in County Clare and County Mayo. In terms of past employment, Donovan had at one point worked part-time as a labourer, but that was the extent of it. Finally then, barrister Mark Nichols, acting on behalf of Raymond Donovan, said that his client, quote, remains very upset over what has happened, and if he could turn back the clock, he would. He has his own troubles and will have to struggle with this and live with this for the rest of his life, end quote. Mr. Justice Carney then handed down the mandatory life sentence. Superintendent Joseph McKeown, who had led the investigation into Anne Walsh's death, spoke to the press when proceedings concluded that day. He said that Anne had been killed in a brutal, vicious and cowardly attack. He continued, quote, My thoughts are with Anne's family, who had to endure such a harrowing time since her dreadful death. It is a tragedy that such a young life should be destroyed so callously. The superintendent said that he hoped that the end of the trial would bring some small degree of comfort for them, knowing that justice had now been done. In the days after his conviction and sentencing, the Sunday World reported that Raymond Donovan was placed on suicide watch by prison authorities. However, given that extra attention and a heightened concern for mental health is routine when someone has been handed down a lengthy sentence and Donovan's own mental health history, this seems to have been a fairly reasonable step taken by the prison service rather than headline-making news. In April of 2007, the Walsh family went through yet another distressing ordeal when the inquest into Anne's death was held in Ennis. Dr. Michael Curtis appeared once more to outline details of his post-mortem findings. Mr. Eugene O'Kelly, a solicitor who represented the Walsh family, addressed the court and said that the family were unclear about an item that had been returned to them after it was held as evidence by Gardee. This was a soiled scarf, but the family said that it hadn't belonged to Anne. She didn't wear them. The Walsh family had lingering questions about what role this scarf might have played, if any, in Anne's death, given it had been held onto by Gardee. Dr. Curtis was able to respond to the solicitor's query and confirmed that the scarf had not been used to, quote, throttle Anne. Mr. O'Kelly also spoke of the effect that Anne's death had had on the family in general, noting, quote, unfortunately, the Walsh family cannot get closure. The killer has a release date. For the Walshes, there is no parole. There is no early release for good behaviour. Her mother, Anne, constantly dreams and constantly imagines Anne coming home to her. The jury returned a verdict of death by murder on the recommendation of the county coroner, Isabel O'Dee. (laughs) 
This episode is sponsored in part by our friends over at Noom. Talking about food and weight is hard for me. The health and wellness industry is exhausting, and it's especially complicated when you have a genuine concern related to your health and nutrition. Tackling that is made so much harder by images of a beautiful person doing their morning yoga and then chugging a smoothie before going on their morning run. And honestly, I feel like I've been battling against that in its many versions for the past, God, 30 years. But now I've gone beyond what I'm comfortable with in terms of my weight and the increased health risks that I'm genuinely facing. And it's hard to try and engage with something that is helpful and take actions to make changes. One of the reasons I find Noom so helpful is that there's no particular prescription they recommend. It's more about the psychology behind the process of losing weight or getting fit or trying to eat a bit healthier, whatever the goal is for you. I recently started just limiting my junk intake and so far I'm delighted with my results. Noom is all about progress over perfection and making those little changes. My main goal is related to increasing physical activity and improving nutrition to have better heart health. I will also grudgingly admit that having less jiggly bits due to that is also a motivator. Noom's program doesn't ban any food or get all judgmental with you if you have a so-called slip, nor does it ask you to jump on a scale in front of a group of people. With Noom, taking care of your health is empowering instead of stress-inducing. It's 10 minutes a day and it's science-based, not a fad diet. So if you also want a little help to get healthy, sign up for your trial at noom.com slash mensrea. Don't forget to tell them I sent you using the link in the show notes or by heading to noom.com slash M-E-N-S-R-E-A to begin your trial today. This episode is also sponsored in part by the wonderful June's Journey. June's Journey is one of my absolute favorite games, and with the combination of its vintage flapper feel and solving mysteries, it's not hard to understand why. The main character is June Parker, an amateur sleuth living in the Roaring Twenties. When you start the game, June is trying to solve the mysterious murder of her sister, and from that point, the twists keep coming. There are affairs, messy divorces, secret love children, and even jewel thieves. You'll meet characters from all walks of life, from all around the world, that are part of June's adventurous and sometimes dangerous life. You'll love the beautiful scenes, which make up the hidden object portion of the game, and you'll get to decorate Orchid Island, June's family home, as you move through the story. Finding those hidden objects is so satisfying and calming, and I love decorating Orchid Island and unlocking new items. Right now, the special items are all romantically themed, and it's all just so pretty. I also joined a club in the game and adore playing the weekly competitions. Not only are the games great fun, you also earn extra prizes. If you're like me and love a good mystery, playing June's Journey is a must to put your powers of observation to the test, sharpen your sleuthing skills, and relish the thrill of solving the case. So if you're ready to awaken your inner detective, join me and 30 million others who have downloaded June's Journey. Get it for free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. Raymond Donovan brought an appeal against his conviction. The appeals court issued their judgment on the 26th of January 2009. In the hearing itself, Isabel Kennedy had argued once more on behalf of the state, and Brendan Nix was arguing for the appellant. The two grounds of the appeal argued by Donovan's legal team were that, firstly, after the trial was over and the verdict was in, Raymond Donovan had told his legal team that there were two members of the jury who were known to him, or who at least probably knew him. There was a concern that these jury members had participated in the trial despite the judge's instructions and warnings, 
and that this may have led to, at the very least, a perception that justice had not been done, or that these jurors had perhaps brought some bias to the trial. Because of these concerns, it was the appellant's assertion that the verdict should be set aside. The appeal judgment noted that a case dating back to 1929, called Cronin, set a precedent that a point such as the one raised by the appellant in this instance must be taken up at trial for it to be considered as a ground for appeal. The only exception allowed by this precedent would be if the point raised had a high degree of seriousness or that there was a good reason for the point not to have arisen during the trial. The appeals court found that this complaint was not of the level of seriousness required and that there was no reason or explanation given by Donovan's team as to why the issue was not raised at trial. In addition, the trial judge in this instance had been extremely clear about whether or not a person was able to sit in the jury. Mr Justice Carney had warned that if any potential jurors knew or had knowledge of the applicant, the applicant's family members and Walsh's family, or even the area in which the involved parties lived, then they were not eligible to be empanelled. Ms Justice Fidelma Mackin, writing on behalf of the court, also commented that there was little to no evidence presented to the court of any real connection having existed between the particular jury members concerned and the applicant. Donovan's lawyers also argued that his appeal should be allowed as the finding of the jury was perverse. That is, there was an assertion that the verdict did not make sense given the evidence that the jury had been presented. Brendan Nix argued that Donovan and Anne had been friends after the breakup, and Donovan had contacted his brother immediately after Anne's death and said he had done something terribly wrong. In addition, Donovan had remained at the scene and cooperated fully with Gardie. He also told Gardie outright that he had put his hands on Anne's neck but denied having intended to hurt or kill her. In the absence of any evidence that Donovan was lying, the jury should have believed him, and therefore their guilty finding was not consistent with the evidence presented at trial. Isabel Kennedy responded to this argument, asserting that evidence had been presented during the trial which related to the applicant's behaviour before Anne's death the fight that had occurred between Donovan and Anne, the admissions made by Donovan in Garda interviews, the injuries the applicant had on his face suggesting a struggle. Ms Kennedy submitted that based on all of that, the jury was open to disbelieve the applicant's version of events. The Court of Appeal noted that instructions were given to the jury based on Section 4 of the Criminal Justice Act 1964, subsection 2, directing that the defendant was assumed, quote, to have intended the natural and probable consequences of his conduct, but that this presumption may be rebutted. The record from the trial indicated that the jury had been made aware of the applicant's medical history, both physical and mental, and Justice Mackin, writing on behalf of the three-judge panel, concluded that the jury had been well able to establish Donovan's demeanour at various points on the night of Anne Walsh's death, with the evidence that had been presented to them. The judgment also noted that a GP, Dr Fitzpatrick, had attended at the Garda station on the night of Donovan's arrest and had given evidence that he had found Donovan to be mildly drunk at that point, but otherwise, quote, fully orientated. The jury had also heard other witnesses whose testimony suggested Donovan had been quite drunk earlier in the evening. 
Importantly, evidence had also been heard Donovan had had quote-unquote complete insight into what he had done basically immediately that night. He had said he had done something terribly wrong when he called his brother. The post-mortem evidence backed up the version of what Donovan himself said he had done. He'd pressed down hard on Anne's throat until she'd gone quiet. The judgment set out that the subjective statement from Donovan asserting that he did not intend to kill Anne did not trump the objective evidence of what had happened. The jury had been properly charged and was entitled to find that the presumption of the natural and probable consequences of his conduct had not been rebutted by the defence in trial. The issue of provocation as a partial defence to Anne's killing had also been raised by Donovan's appeal. The judgment of the Court of Criminal Appeal explained that in order to find provocation, the jury must be shown evidence that there was, quote, conduct that leads to some momentary loss of control on the part of the accused, such that it was not possible for him to react in any way other than the manner in which he reacted. However, the evidence before the jury in this case was that there had been no loss of control, because during his Garda interview, Donovan was asked outright if he had been angry at Anne and he had said he wasn't. Donovan had also been asked to describe his mood, and he told Gardie that he was okay. The Court of Appeal left aside any issue relating to how one might ordinarily react to an argument like Donovan had described, leaving space for the subjective nature of someone's reaction. But it found there was no evidence present indicating that there had been a momentary or sudden loss of control. The Court of Appeal concluded, quote, even if there was some evidence that could go to the jury, the jury was entitled to reject it in its entirety, as was the jury entitled to make a determination as to the credibility of the applicant on the one hand when measured against objective evidence presented on the other hand. End quote. Donovan's appeal had failed on all grounds. Though legal proceedings in relation to Anne's murder had then concluded, that did not mean that the ordeal was over for the Walsh family. In March of 2016, Anne's family spoke out after they received a call from the parole service, informing them that Raymond Donovan had been granted a day-release pass to meet with his father in a halfway house in Milltown, South County Dublin. The decision had been made in circumstances where Donovan's father was unable to make the journey to see him in prison. When Anne Sr. was told this, she asked if Donovan's father was ill or dying, but she was told no, he was fine. Anne Walsh told RTE's Liveline radio programme that she was disgusted. Quote, My whole life, my own family was turned upside down because of him. The news broke my heart. He can talk to his parents, his sisters, but I can never talk to my daughter. Life should mean life. It should. Anne Senior alleged that Donovan had shown no remorse throughout the trial and had sat in the courtroom laughing and sticking his fingers up at Anne's family. Indeed, various articles relating to Donovan carried photos alongside where the now hulking man was captured giving the middle finger to press photographers as he left court during his appeal proceedings. Anne Walsh had also learned that Donovan had been granted day release the year before, which the family had not been notified of. In May 2020, the Walsh family got news that Donovan was being prepared for early release, having served 14 years behind bars for Anne's murder. 
her younger brother Stephen Walsh took on the role of speaking to the press to publicise the family's wishes that Donovan not be released. Speaking to the Irish Mirror, Stephen Walsh, who was just 16 when his sister was murdered, said that Anne's killing had been no accident. He recalled findings of the post-mortem which stated that during the course of Donovan's attack on the 23-year-old, he had knelt on her chest. Stephen also said that Donovan had in fact dragged Anne to the secluded place behind the parish church by the hair, which had torn clumps of it from her scalp. Stephen also referred to the visible injuries that Donovan had, saying that Anne had put up an almighty fight, scraping Donovan to try and get away that night, a fact Stephen said was also confirmed by the findings at post-mortem. Around that time, in the early summer of 2020, Donovan had been due to be transferred to the open prison Shelton Abbey in order to begin a pre-release programme. However, he had been linked to a contraband mobile phone. Donovan had denied that the phone was his and an investigation into the matter was being carried out at Castlereagh Prison. In addition, six months before, Donovan was one of a number of prisoners who were caught stashing a cache of a phone, a stun gun and an amount of drugs in the prison. Speaking to the Irish Mirror's reporter, Stephen Walsh said Donovan had never shown any remorse for what he had done and had not been of good behaviour while he was in prison. Stephen said Donovan was a, quote, ticking time bomb and dangerous. The family's unease and consequently their campaign was ramped up in autumn of 2021 when it appeared that Raymond Donovan could be on the verge of release from prison. They had learned that the transfer to Shelton Abbey was to go ahead. Stephen, again speaking to the Irish Mirror, told reporter Louise Rosengrave, quote, The next step is out the door and they're not telling us anything. It's killing my mother and it's killing my father. It's killing us all. Anne's brother described how their father's life now fully revolved around his frequent visits to Anne's grave. He left the house only to go there or to the local shops, and had insisted on being brought to the grave immediately after an operation on his hip, refusing to go to bed otherwise. The following month, the family were informed that Donovan would be allowed out on day release in order to spend time with family at Christmas although this was shortly after followed by a call to say this had been cancelled due to concerns over COVID-19. The family felt that there was not enough information provided to them and they were not confident that this trip had been cancelled. They were worried that members of the Walsh family might accidentally bump into Donovan in the community if he was allowed out. The family's worries seemed to have been founded as they were told shortly before the holiday that Donovan was in fact to be allowed out on temporary release. Stephen told Louise Rosengrave, quote, Four days before Christmas, and the whole family is up in a heap now with this news. Already we pass the place where she was killed every day. It's only a few hundred yards up the road. We can't avoid this. Our family cannot get away from it. They were told that Donovan was being released to spend a few days in County Wicklow. There were no further details provided to them, besides the fact that the decision had been made and there was nothing that could now be done about it. Donovan was one of 70 prisoners who had been granted temporary release, all of whom, according to the prison service, were close to the end of their sentences or did not pose a risk to the public or any possible victims of their crimes. Somehow, Donovan had been included in this list. The Irish Prison Service went on to say that in making the decisions on whether a prisoner was eligible for temporary Christmas release, 
they took into account the nature and gravity of the offence, of the sentence served to that point, behaviour while in custody and previous criminal history. A spokesperson also said that the Irish Prison Service Victim Liaison Service had been notifying people registered with them where applicable, and the length of the temporary releases granted varied from a few hours up to seven nights. The prisoners would also be subject to stringent conditions while out on release. Most recently, on February 6th of this year, 2022, the Clare Champion reported that Raymond Donovan had been transferred from Shelton Abbey back to Castlereagh Prison. This indicated that Donovan had perhaps done something which warranted a rollback on his pre-release programme and planning. Stephen Walsh said that getting that news was like winning the lottery. As Stephen had said earlier, quote, Anne is dead, but Donovan is alive. Why should he get to go and live his life? Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Mens Rea Pod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. A special thanks this week goes out to Magpie, Kathleen Cropper, Nico, Tysana and Louise Farrelly. Thanks to each and every one of you for signing up to support the show. It is hugely important to be able to keep Mens Rea going. And along with my undying love for helping out, you get those ad-free and bonus episodes as well as Nifty March. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash Mens Pod and check it out. Thanks also to our sponsors for this week, June's Journey, Stitch Fix, Manscaped and Noom. Remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show, so check them out in the show notes. Our theme music is Quinsong, The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This episode was researched, written and produced by me, your host Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Welcome to Guilty Greeny. I feel like we should start off this show by saying it's nearly impossible to be 100% sustainable given the current world we live in. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Not a great analogy for a vegetarian, but you know. We're talking uh, about sustainability, maybe not the best analogy. Don't eat the elephant is the first rule of the Guilty Greeny. There's your first challenge of the week. Avoid (laughs) elephants. What they used to call frugal is now considered sustainable. That's such an aha moment. Frugal to sustainable. You can save money and help the planet. That's going to be our new tagline for sure. You can find Guilty Greenie on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And join us in tackling the Guilty Greenie challenges. Until then, stay curiously green. Green.